Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And i got to tell you something, people. I love when things are like a small world and there's a coincidence. Like that opening bit, that drum solo, and the, you're listening to Cooper Talk. That's a really good friend of mine, Rich Redmond, who's also Jason Aldean's drummer. And when I was doing my research for my episode today, I'm looking through my band's website and then on their uh, Wikipedia page, and I see that Rich played for them and i was like how cool is this small world so i texted rich and rich said my guest is like the ultimate front man the nicest guy the whole band's nice from lit my guest is aj popoff how you doing aj hey steve what's up dude that's crazy that's a, what a small world i know he said i said i said how do you know him and he said no how do you know rich uh you know just from nashville just going up to nashville and he Man, I, I want to say it, it all started with him playing percussion for uh, my brother Jeremy at the time. Um, his girlfriend, uh, Jennifer Wayne, had, she's now in Runaway June, but she had a group at the time. Um, I get the name wrong. I think it's like, not Angel, but anyway, Rich was playing percussion for them. And we met that way, and next thing you know, just everyone started, you know, talking, and we started hanging out, became friends, and uh, we needed a drummer. We were kind of in between and uh, in a little bit of a bind, and, and Rich is just an insane drummer, so, uh, he's a, and he's a hard hitter. So at the time, we were, you know, we're, it was for Lit, and we, it was for a rock show in Nashville, and asked if he wanted to come down and rehearse with us and, and play the show with us. And uh, So yeah, so that kind of came, that was a little bit after, you know, we kind of got to know each other and became friends, but since then, it's, you know, we've, been, we've crossed paths and stayed, stayed close and just a great guy, you know. Yeah. I kind of found that with a lot of, a lot of the uh, talented musicians out in Nashville, just such great people. Well, I think it's crazy. I think that's why people go there. It's funny because I, I met Rich at Lucky Lara's house, Lucky at a party, and me and Rich instantly became friends, and he stayed with me and my wife a few times, and he said, you know, he's been in Nashville so long, but it seems like everyone is, a lot of people are moving down there. Now, are, are you going to move there? I, you know, I, I've been trying to for a long time now, but you know, I kind of knew it was going to be a process because my <clears throat> I have a, um, a daughter, and she's actually graduating this year. So it's been sort of the process of not wanting to, well, for one, you know, I, I'm from a, uh, we're from, she's from a broken home. I, my my ex-wife and I divorced when she was really little. So we're, um, she goes to the same schools that she, she started going to in the, you know, since she was a preschooler um, close to my house. And so I didn't want to change or, or disrupt her life in any way. So I basically, you know, it's been all about flying to Nashville anytime we wanted to, you know, record or, um, you know, write songs. It was always the more conducive place for, for all that stuff um, for us. My, you know, my brother and I just fell in love with just the community and the, and the way, the way of writing and, uh, man, I, I, just everything, uh, just, just the city in general just had such good vibes and it was so, so inspiring and so different from what we had been used to, you know, entire lives of growing up in Southern California. So to, to make a, you know, to get to your, to answer your question, yes, we're looking at houses now, 
now that my daughter just accepted her offer from University of Utah, and she's going to be moving away. So I'm like, well, this is the time. And so I, I literally put my house on the market. We just opened escrow yesterday, and I mean, it's, it's moving quick. So we'll probably be in Nashville in the next 30 to 60 days. That's awesome. I want to talk about Lit, but uh, I want to talk about the Pop Off Brothers. I know, didn't you guys just recently release a single? Or tell me, you know, it's a different, it's a different direction than Lit, early Lit was. Tell me about how you guys decided to follow the country path. Um, I mean, I, I guess that sort of goes back to what I was saying about going to Nashville and just that initial introduction. It's been, it's been a lot of years, you know. It kind of it started. Uh, I'm probably just a, I'm such a I'm a terrible uh, timeline keeper. But my brother started going there about 15 years ago, I want to say, um, and just ran and raved about how great it was, you know, getting in these rooms and writing with some of these great writers and just how much he had been learning and just loved it there. And I, for, for a long time, for, for a couple years, I, you know, my, my philosophy was, well, you know, everything we've written up until now, we've written you know, a certain way, and we've been doing it in, you know, Orange County for the most part, and I just didn't say, I don't just, I don't see a need to fly across country to write songs, and, you know, I kind of, like, held on to that for a while, and then it, it got to a point where I was like, you know what, I, why the hell not, like, I, I wanted to get over there and check out what he had been talking about, and sure enough, man, it was, like, the exact same experience he had, we got in a room, my, my first writing um, experience in Nashville was with Jeffrey Steele and uh, Vicky McGeehee and uh, oh, man, and we, we just booked you know a few sessions out there and ended up getting you know there, we got like a Rascal Flatts hold in that same that same right and it, it just the energy that I felt and like that the inspiration that I felt man I was like man you were you're absolutely right and I was anxious to get back and that was I would say about ten years ago for myself. Um, and that it just sort of became this thing, like, man, we write our best stuff, you know, when we're out there. So why not, why not just keep booking trips out there? And it, and it became one of those things, like every, you know, maybe month to six weeks, we had a, a week in Nashville. And then, you know, my brother eventually bought his, he's actually on a second house out there. But we'd go there and stay in his house. And when we weren't there, he was Airbnb in it. And just, uh, you know, it, it just worked for a long time, but then it got to a point where everybody, all the friends we had made, and uh, all the writers that we started working with so much, it was like, man, are you are you are you living here yet? And um, and it kind of started feeling like we were, you know, almost felt like a second home, where it totally did. And then it, and then you know, now it's, it, it was pretty much impossible till now for myself. So you know, fast forward ten plus years, we're you know going to become actual members of the community, which is exciting. Uh, it's exciting for me. We, we've got a lot there as lit as well. I mean, we've got a lot of country writing, but we, you know, we also learn that a lot of these country players like Rich and Tully and all those guys in the Alvin band, um, a lot of those guys, you know, are rockers and they grew up in rock bands. And, you know, I found that as we all sort of gotten older, not only has life changed a lot, our music, our musical taste, we've always, my brother and I have always listened to like everything from pop to rock to, you know, country. When we were little kids, before we knew what country was, it was just like, you know, Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton was, those were artists that we just figured, man, those are hit songs and we love these songs. And um, so, man, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that 
we didn't really realize that when we put out our last lit record and it leaned more country, how much our fans, um, especially, you know, fans like in California and places that aren't, don't really get that Southern mentality or don't necessarily love country music, didn't realize how much they considered the, this record a country, full-on country record. Um, but I, you know, I understand it. And I think that my brother and I finally, like, you know, it came up when we, when we put out These Are The Days um, as lit that, you know, maybe we should change the name of it. Maybe it's not a lit record. Um, and it wasn't until recently that we finally just went, you know, let's separate those two. And by doing that, it sort of opened up this, um, I don't know, this creative flow. I think we were having a hard time, like, really writing, like, classic-sounding lit songs because it sort of all just became this one thing for us when we wrote songs. And now that we've, like, gone, this is going to be Pop Off Brothers, and it's what we love so much about Nashville, and we're going to make this, we're not going to put any boundaries on what we write, and we're going to let Lit live in, you know, Lit land, and let it be, you know, our bass player Kevin doesn't love country music, and, <laughs> um, and we're going to draw the line between the two, totally made sense, and it just sort of has opened up the floodgates of, like, nostalgia, and... I'm able to revisit the way I was feeling when we, you know, in 1998, you know, when we were writing those songs. And, you know, so we're actually working on new lit music too. We're, we're writing classic lit. We got, um, yeah, I, I'm like, I just keep on talking. I'm gonna let you talk for a minute. I'm just going to ask the questions I'm going I'm to try to answer anyway. I know, no, fine. I was going to say, uh, I was going to say one thing I've noticed though about uh, country music, you know, when I grew up, like the country music, I, I whenever Rich is in town, I live outside Philadelphia, we go to see Jason, and we go hang out with Rich backstage. And country music now is very similar to the Southern rock I grew up with, like Molly Hatchet and The Outlaws. It's got a very different feel than what people think country is. Absolutely. I agree. You know, it's funny you say that, because like, I'm finding that it's almost like, I don't know if you if you've heard this as well but like I hear more and more people these days when they you know the, the haters or people that hear you know maybe some of the newer lit stuff or pop up brother stuff and, and and the first thing out of their mouth is I hate new country uh, and, and people that don't really probably don't really like country music anyway but it's like the cool the cool people like to, like to rip on any kind of new you know uh, evolution of a genre, which rock and roll evolved for many, many, many years. You know what I mean? Like, if you listen to the rock and roll that my parents were playing when we were little kids, you know, it was like Doobie Brothers and, you know, the Eagles, which rode the line between rock and roll and country. Um, but yeah, you know, and then, then next thing you know, we're, we're listening to heavy metal and Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. You know, that was, we considered that, considered that rock and it was heavy metal, but it's, you know, it wasn't the same rock and roll that our, you know, parents. Not that they disliked it, but you know, you gotta. I think you gotta allow country. You know, I'm not an expert on country music by by any means, but I feel like it, it kind of started evolving at a pretty quick rate, not that long ago, right? I mean, I mean, the '90s had it had a, a very unique country sound, but um, I don't know. I, I'm a fan of good music. I love you know, a lot of classic country that I that I love, and there's tons of new stuff that I, that I love and I don't care if you know some some guy for whatever reason wants to call it bro country or wants to call this you know hate on Florida George line because they think 
you know, whatever. I don't know. I, to me, it just comes across as like, well, I got to ask you, you know, you said about you, you love music. Um, when did you decide you wanted to play music? How old were you? Because I know you were in a band at a young age, pretty young age, but when did you decide to get into playing music? Um, well, I mean, the cool thing about my brother and I are the only siblings in our household. We, we always were, um, you know, the first, I think our, our dad took us to our first concert. I was eight. Uh, my brother was 10. And he took us to, to see Iron Maiden. And they opened for UFO at Long Beach Arena. And, man, to be honest, we both, as soon as, like, the guy standing, we were up in the balcony. We had terrible seats. But the guy standing next to our dad and the two of us, like, lit up a joint. And <laughs> the lights, you know, lights went off. And the stage lights went on, and it was just like this craziest energy we had ever experienced. We're just like, we look over, like, this guy next to us is doing drugs. And look at him, he's like losing his mind over this, this band. And I remember, like, he had long, long hair, and, you know, he started, like, headbanging, like, looked like in slow motion, pretty much. And we just, like, we looked at each other, and we're just like, holy shit, we, we gotta be those guys on that stage. Like, how do we do that? How do we get there? And, you know, for, for you know, quite a few years we just pretended you know we we'd get out the broomsticks you know and play guitar and I you know pretend like I was singing Bruce Dickinson's part and um you know and it got to a point where I think, I think it was probably high school um you know Jeremy's two years older so he he started rodeoing for some local band and he ended up you know auditioning to get in the band um it was a, it was a band called Dreams that you know he idolized because they were just doing everything cool that you know the beginning stages that he wanted to you know tap into um for myself i was a little younger and i still had you know figured how the hell am i going to get out you know, out of the school thing that i'm that i'm stuck in uh and i guess it wasn't until i was i was about 14 and i started my own band with our bass player kevin our present bass player um he and i just recruited the coolest looking guy in our school that you know to be our singer and we were just like, all right, cool, man. You look like you should be in a band. And he didn't, he couldn't really, couldn't really sing, but, um, but it was all good. Yeah. And we played our, we ended up booking a show. We played our first show at the Troubadour in Hollywood. And I was the drummer at 14. And then it wasn't until we realized like, man, we're not going to really get anywhere with this configuration. And we need to, we need to find another singer. And I had been doing, like, all the background vocals and stuff at my plate drums. And I said, man, let me, I'm going to try it. Because I was, I was, like, super, I was full of energy at that age. And all I wanted to do would be, you know, I wanted to be that rock star on stage and just be a front man. Like, David Lee Roth and all my favorite front men. So I was like, man, I'm, I'm kind of, I love playing drums, but I want to, I want to just have freedom on that stage, you know. And um, so at 16, I... You know, we got Big Al, our drummer that was in the band for and, until he passed away, bless his heart. But we, uh, you know, we started doing shows with me as a singer. Our first show was at Gazzari's on the Strip. <laughs> and, you know, that was the only places really we can get, get gigs at, you know, these all-age venues were all up in Hollywood. So we would just, we built up a following and, um, you know, started eventually selling out the Roxy, the Whiskey, the Troubadour, Gazzari's, and all these like venues and 
it, it was, you know, once we started playing shows and we started building a following and had crowds coming to see us, it was a, you know, done deal. Now, did you, I mean, you know, you look back at it now, but did you ever think, like, how amazing it is that your first show was at the Troubadour? Like, I'm, I'm guessing at, like, at, at your age, when you were 14 or 15, you probably really know the history. But looking back at it, do you go, holy shit, our first show was at the Troubadour? Yeah, it, it is pretty mind-blowing. Like, I literally just got, like, goosebumps when you said that. Cause I, think I, I think I heard something about them closing down. Yeah. For good. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, we, we started... You know, I think probably from the moment we had our gig there, started researching and checking out the bands that have played there and what shows were coming up. And um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, especially looking back, yeah, we we were pretty, we're really lucky. I think for the the time that we were coming up, um, to be to catch, you know, we caught the tail end of that Sunset Strip '80s kind of hair band thing that was going on. That was super massive, and it was during a time when you know, we'd literally go walking up and down Sunset Strip as 14-year-olds and, you know, with a stack of flyers and a bottle of whiskey, you know, and, the, like, cops didn't even look twice at us. And we were just like, holy shit, this is, this is true rock and roll shenanigans. Like, we're up, we're in it, and all the guys around us look like, you know, they look like the guys we saw on TV. And, you know, it was uh, a lot of hot chicks and just everything we, like, wanted was right there. We're like, well, shit. This is where we're gonna live. We, I think, we even got a uh, a fake, not a fake, but we got a P PO box or whatever up in Hollywood, and we got that was back when um, bands had hotlines. <laughs> <laughs> so pe people would call, they would call the phone number on your flyer, and they could like, you know, you you'd have a voice greeting saying, you know, you've reached a Razzle hotline, whatever, and you tell them your show's coming up, and that was your social media, I suppose. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just we got that was our school of how to promote our band and street market and network and get us to where we eventually got you know where we had management and uh, thank god you know we, we kind of laughed we, we got so close to getting a record deal back then as kids and with that band that if you know it, it, it probably would have we would have been like in heaven at the time but it would have destroyed our career you know what I mean like we weren't we weren't ready. We weren't developed enough to to be, um, you know, put out into the world. I mean, as far as, as songwriters or <clears throat> performers, you know what I mean. Well, so how, how, how did you get for all that? Well, I was to say, how did you get your first record deal? Um, so the, our our first real record deal was, um, you know, it kind of it didn't happen for I want to say it took about ten years of us being. You know, playing these clubs and being a band and writing shitty songs and getting better at it and and then there was an A and R guy from Delicious Final who who convinced those guys to have you know to do an imprint label through Delicious Final called Malicious Final and it was going to be like the rock the rock version of Delicious and you know they signed bands like Slow Burn and. They had a uh, oh man, I'm, I'm spacing on the, all the names of the, the bands. But they had you know, but they had a lot of rap bands like Master, Master P and Tone Loke, and so they uh, they ended up signing us. I, I think ninety ninety seven could have been one of those years, but um, and we put out a record, 
with them, tripping like fantastic. And eventually, I, you know, I think we just sort of, I'm a big fan of like not really rushing things. I'm, you know, we like to, we like to outgrow our space <laughs> and, and try and bring people along and, or acknowledge, you know, people that were part of the process. And they definitely were, and they got us to our, you know, the next level. And, and then, um, so we started playing as we got a little older, we started playing some venues down in Orange County and, uh, you know, and building a following down this way, um, as well. And there, this girl, you probably know she's, she's super famous now, but, uh, Stacy from Stacy Ferguson. And she, at the time she was in a band called Wild Orchid. She started coming to see us play in, uh, in Orange County and went back to, and told her and our guy, Ron Fair, who assigned, you know, signed her to Black IPs, which she's known as 30 at that point, um, and, you know, was responsible for signing Christina Aguilera, and um, anyway, long story short, talked him into coming and checking us out. So you gotta come see these guys, they're great. And he, you know, very eccentric guy, super smart, great producer, uh, like, his ear, like, two getting ears to the point where, like, if you, you know, you hit a bad note or uh, you didn't write the, you know, <laughs> the arrangement properly. It was like some note, note that didn't belong. He would call it out. But he, you know, he came out to our little dingy warehouse in Anaheim and sat through an entire practice and was, uh, he was stoked. Um, and he, he ended up at the time, actually, he hadn't signed Christina Aguilera yet and he hadn't done big things with, with Fergie at, at just at that at that point. So he actually had to bring in another A&R guy, Bruce Floor from RCA, who was more sort of the rock guy, and whereas Tom was more pop. And Bruce Floor had signed Foo Fighters, and anyway, brought, brought Bruce Floor into the fold, and next thing you know, I mean, it, it happened pretty quick after that. Those guys both fell in love with the band, and you know, we started doing showcases uh, up in Hollywood Viper Room, and um, got... It, it was a crazy process, man. It was. I mean, we actually got turned down by every major label before those guys, you know, committed. But um, pretty crazy, though. I and mean, we were playing Myron Morstanemi at the Viper Room and wa- literally watching A&R guys walk out the side door, uh, at, you know, letting the sunlight in because it was, you know, midday showcases, which were nerve-wracking to begin with. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, those guys were... Uh, what was it like when you actually you signed with RCA? Like, you know, do you feel pressure because I you really have to do something good? Or I mean, what 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 are you thinking? I mean, not I don't think we were feeling any pressure. I mean, at the time, uh, you know, it, it started moving so quick, and I think that we we had been a band for so long, and we, you know, not not that we were cocky at all. We were. We knew we had a lot of work to do, but at the same time, we, we definitely, at this stage, we felt ready. Um, we had all of our songs on, on A Place in the Sun. We had everything, you know, written and pre-produced and demoed and, um, you know, to the point where there, were, there was, uh, the first radio station to play my own it was um, St. Louis, and they they actually started playing the demo of my almost enemy. So when, when, once RCA started, you know, we, we signed the deal and, you know, everything started moving. We were in the recording studio and like right away, we were shooting a video for my almost enemy, like 
you know, before we even finished the record, um, songs started. It, it, it moved very quickly. It, there was really no time to get nervous. It was just excitement, and it was time to get to work. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I didn't. I, I didn't really think I, we felt any sort of pressure until probably the second record. Um, you know, because everyone's all, when people were interviewing us and almost talk about your second record and and do you feel pressured and that same question pretty much. But at the time. We're like, man, should we? <laughs> Maybe we should feel pressure. And, um, you know, there was a lot of craziness going on in the world at that time um, when we were about to release our Atomic record. And that was, you know, when, when 9-11 happened. So much like this whole COVID thing, uh, you know, a much different circumstance. But at the same time, it was the world just literally got like the rug pulled out and, and no one knew what the hell was going on. I remember like songs were getting pulled off the radio that said, you know, anything that was going to stir up the wrong emotion in people. And, but yeah, I mean, it was, it's been a, this business is a roller coaster ride, man. Every, everyone says that, man. You know, it's like, and it's so funny because things change too. It's like videos. Like you're the video you guys did for my own worst uh, enemies, a great video. And, uh, how, when did you know that song started like just becoming big? And I mean, did you just know, like how quick, do you know, when you have a hit? Um, I mean, I guess when, the, at the time we had such a great team um, in place from management to just our RCA team and everybody kept us pretty well you know, informed. And so we were, if, if it was something they didn't just automatically call us and tell us, uh, we were um, we were finding out you know, the, the request lines, like most requested, you know, I mean, we, we're, we're, we're one of those bands that, you know, we're, we're self-starters and self-promoters you know, and part of the, mar- the whole marketing plan and everything. So we, we paid attention to what stations were, quote-unquote, researching. And, um, but it didn't, I mean, we, we knew uh, pretty quickly because the request lines at all these stations were, um, it wasn't like we had seen with other, some other artists and other singles that we put out where it literally cost you know cost a shit ton of money to you know keep a song give the song time to react you know what i mean so you keep you know, keep the station happy and keep them playing it um before you actually see some kind of reaction that one kind of just organically just started reacting immediately um and it's we didn't understand why at the time and i guess there's there's an element of like oh this is this is going to be this easy for us this whole, you know what i mean like it's always just going to be Boom! Here we go. Here's another song. Take that, and um, and it's crazy now. You know, 21 years later, to to have a song like that that's um, this phenomenon is like it, it still it's it still gets so many plays. I don't I don't know the numbers offhand, but like you know, every time I get in my car to go to the grocery store or whatever, there's a <laughs> there's about a 90 percent chance I'm going to hear it on the radio. Um, now. You, it's just it's mind blowing. Do you remember the first time you heard it on the radio? I do. Yeah, I bet you every band that's you know hardworking band that gets a, their song on the radio probably has a story as to where they were and they reacted. Um, we were we were about to. Uh, I think we already had some show dates and we were about to head out on tour and. Kevin, our bass player, was at my house. I, I was living at home, my parents, and he came over and we were, I don't know if we were about to go to Target or whatever, pick up some tour supplies, something like that. And we're, we're in the living room, and I had, at the time, I, 
I knew that these stations were talking about, you know, possibly adding our song. And we had K-Rock, uh, alternative station in L.A. We had that on in my living room. And we weren't expecting to hear it. And, and sure enough, man, we're about to leave. And I heard one of their you know, radio stations have their new music commercial. And a new music commercial came on and it was playing, you know, songs from so-and-so. It plays like a, you know, a sec- couple second clip. And it, and then it came and it said lit and it played a little clip of the song. And I looked at it, I'm like, oh my God, my heart dropped. And, and the next song that came on was our song. And uh, Kevin and I like look at each other and like literally like tears welled up and we were like, hugging each other. It was like, you know, that movie, that thing you do, it was much like that. Like just, you know, overwhelming. I felt like a little girl. I, like <laughs> the emotions that, that I don't think a lot of guys are meant to feel. <laughs> that wave came over. I'm like, man, now I know, I kind of know how, why the, the girls that go to Beatles concerts, why they pass out and shit like that. Cause like that, that just, that overwhelming good feeling, you know, taking over your body is, man, it's, there's nothing like it. I, I don't know if it's something that you can ever feel more than once. <laughs> right. Well, now, now it's funny because I, as I said, when I, I, I checked out the mis, I checked it off, or I checked recently, checked it out again. The uh, miserable uh, video was. Were you was Pamela uh, Anderson even around you guys, or were you just all shot differently and superimposed on that? Yeah, it was a green screen thing. But the the crazy, the story behind that video was, um, we had we'd been asked by. Uh, she had a TV show. I don't know if you remember her show called VIP. Yeah. And it was basically a bunch of hot girls that were bodyguards, and they got assigned these cases. Um, and we got hit up to for our band to be part of that show. And literally, like they they wrote an entire episode treatment uh, based around our band. And you know, the whole story was like I had this belt buckle that was like my prized possession. It was like. It, uh, and it had gotten stolen, and we hired VIP to to help us find it, track it down. And anyways, <laughs> bad show, but fun to watch because they're like it was terrible acting, but it's almost like on purpose. <laughs> um, but while we were you know we're taping that show, and we you know took I forget how many days it took to film, but in, in the process of filming it, I you know all most of my scenes were with Pam. Because she was like, she was assigned to me as my bodyguard. The rest, the other girls had different guys with them, and so, you know, we we gotten to be, you know, friendly, and it was cool. And and then while we were on set for for that show, towards the end, somebody somebody at RCA, someone had like forwarded a treatment from a video director, and it was basically, as you can imagine, the outline of that video before Pam was in it, and it's just you know this fifty foot woman, whatever, and. She, she eats the band and all this, whatever. It's a crazy idea. And we're like, man, that's like, that's pretty corny and it doesn't, doesn't sound that cool. And like, we could probably come up with something better. And then they were like kind of pushing for it. They really wanted us to do it. And I remember uh, someone said like, Pam like walked by set. She went to, came out of makeup, and, you know, hair and makeup or whatever. And someone said, man, how about this? If we can get Pam Anderson to play the giant woman, like we're, we're in, we'll do that video. And sure enough, like, Somebody from the camp did it. I went through the right channel to hit her up. I wasn't going to ask her, like, you know, on the spot, but, um, and she was totally all about it. She loved to do it. You know, she, like, she, she 
offered her time. It took her like, I want to say like 14 hours. She was on set and didn't charge us anything. She basically, she said, pay my hair and makeup guy. And that's it. Um, so just like the like super awesome, awesome girl. She's very smart, just gracious. She had her kids on set all day. And, but yeah, and then we got to hang on, watch her, you know, watch her around in her white bikini and, um, just surreal, you know what I mean? That moment was like one of those pinnacle, holy shit, guys, look, Pamela Anderson is walking around, you know, in a bikini, and she's in our video. Like, yeah, that was gnarly. <laughs> and she eats me. She picks me up and puts me in her mouth. <laughs> yeah, so good. We were, yeah, we were, we were so now, good. Now, during yeah, that time... Yeah, that video was like... Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, as I say, during, during that time, you also, you played Woodstock, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was crazy. What was that like? Because I actually I just talked to uh, uh, Cosmo Clifford, uh, who was a drummer for uh, is drummer for CCR, and he told me about how Woodstock then was like oh, wow. no one was expecting anything. What was it like when you guys went to Woodstock? I mean, we we were like when we got offered that show, you know, it was like a dream come true. We we knew that it was we didn't know what to expect, but we knew it was gonna be a, a shitload of people, you know. Um, so, um, just to be around all those legends that were, you know, on the bill that day, I can't, um, man, I wish I had a list in front of me. I have this killer, um, Woodstock poster that just has everybody that played that day. And I still look back on it and just go, like, oh my God, I can't, I forgot they were there. Um, but for us, we played on, it was the first day and it was before any like shit show started, you know? So for us, it was nothing but positive, um, you know, massive crowd and just, pay-per-view was there and you know that was always nerve-wracking I always hated being I love playing in front of big crowds but I've always been like there's something about being in a you know we did a lot of late night television shows and anytime you like put a camera between me and the audience where I'm connecting it, it's always made me really nervous so you know that was I remember that day just being like and there's a picture of me on the side of that massive stage and right before I hit I never get nervous or stuff. And I just had this, this like, man, you just need to relax. So I reached over, I, I grabbed, we had this, at the time, a uh, Jägermeister sponsor. Um, and I grabbed this, like, the biggest bottle they make. And, I, and I'm, like, just started, like, taking a huge swig right on the side of the stage. And, uh, and somebody took a picture of it. And it's such, it's a really cool shot. But it takes me back to that moment of, like, all right, here we go. <laughs> Don't fuck this up. <laughs> but no. it's good, man. It was uh, we, we're lucky. We're lucky to be a part of it. Now, you know, you're, you're, as you said, your career's lasted so long. But you know, when you when you broke with RCA, where where, where does where does musicians go when their uh, mind go when they're no longer with their label? So you really don't know what mm-hmm. you're going to do. Um, we we had we were sort of convinced at that time that we were smart enough and experienced enough to assemble a team and keep a lot of our, you know, a lot of our players that we already had in place, keep them in place too. Um, you know, personally, I think we, we probably all agree that look in retrospect, that was probably a mistake. I think that it was our, you know, RCA in our defense was a much different label at the time that we left. I mean, if, I think if it would have been Bob Jamison, president, Jack Rover, Vice President, you know, all of our same team that was there at the time when we were having a blast, um, I don't think it would have, we would have a lot, I, I guarantee you. Um, but there were so many changes made that we felt like when we went to the label, we were just like strangers. 
Um, so we thought, you know, the best thing to do would be to get out of that and, and you know, it felt like they could have like maybe held us back or kept us from doing what we wanted to do. And, and yeah, so it is, it's a little, once you're, once you're coming, you've cut ties. It is probably feels a little bit like, you know, moving out of the parent's house, you know, like you're like, next thing you know, you're like, oh shit, I gotta go grocery shopping. Like I'm just, I'm so used to they're just automatically being a right. bottle of ketchup in the fridge and, <laughs> and a soy sauce cover. You know what I mean? And you start, you start figuring out like, oh man, I'm missing all the, I'm missing all these supplies that I'm used to just having at my, my disposal. <laughs> now, during your your tenure of the band, uh, you lost your drummer, Alan. How do you how do you recover from that? Because it, you guys were together for a long time. How how does a musician and just as a friend, how do you recover and actually then welcome someone new to fill those shoes? It was a tough, tough emotional roller coaster in itself. I mean, we who would ever thought? I mean, that's not something you know. Alan was he was our drummer. He's you know, drummers in general tend to be the more you know physically fit like. You know, guys in the band. He was the oldest, but uh, you know, the guy was uh, he was running like five miles or more a day. He had just opened uh, he was about to open a second boxing gym uh, in Arizona. He had just bought a house in Arizona. And things were nice. You know, things were going great for him. Um, and he, we never in a million years would have thought that he would have gotten sick. Uh, but yeah, he, uh, he he started just the weirdest the weirdest things started happening. I, you know, he got offered. We actually got offered a entire European tour with opening for Kiss, and similar kind of thing. He he, he was living in Arizona, but he came home and we we went to go. Um, everyone was going and getting their supplies from Walmart or Target or what whatnot. And you know, he was he was getting lost and he was very disoriented and he just got really scared. So uh, you know, he ended up taking the hospital. He had um, you know diagnosed with brain cancer, and it was. It was gnarly, and we tried to, we played some shows, um, his, the symptoms of forgetfulness, and, you know, he had these, he went right into treatment, but some of the side effects were, you know, debilitating for him as far as playing songs, so we, at the time, we didn't know what to do, we didn't want to stop playing, and we didn't want him to know that, you know, we wanted him to live out for, you know, as long as he could with, um, you know, playing music and being able to do, being able to do the things he loved doing. Um, so we ended up starting out with a back, sort of a backup drummer, Adrian, uh, drummer for No Doubt. Uh, we'd come out, and those guys were very close friends, and they'd go golfing all the time. And so Adrian would set up a, a kit next to Alan, and when Alan got tired, or if he started, you know, maybe he dropped the part, or something happened, Adrian would just be there to pick up. And, you know, we did, we did some gigs like that. And then, you know, when Alan got to a point where he was too sick to play, we, we just stopped playing. And we basically became, you know, he ended up moving in with Kevin, our drummer, and Kevin became sort of his day-to-day caretaker. And we would just, you know, we would visit him and, and just try and keep his morale up and just be there as brothers. And, and then that got to, uh, it got to a point where he got too sick for Kevin to take care of him. And um, we were all there, you know, at the... The night he was, he was actually staying at his mom's house, and the night that Al passed away, we were all at his bedside. Um, and one of our really good friends, who also was very close with Al, and uh, Nathan Walker, um, was there that night as well. And we sort of had this, you know, closure with Alan, and and I think it was after um, we, we we sat out for quite a bit, 
and then you know Nathan Walker happens to be a, a great drummer and it, that night we just had this sort of this feeling and the sense of it's you know it's okay to keep playing Alan wants to keep playing shows as a band he would he would hate for this to you know to break up our band or to, or to end you know be an end of the lit saga or whatever you want to call it um, but so we asked Nathan Walker to join the band and um, you know, it was like a handing of the torch. It felt like more than uh, you know, auditioning drummers and going through some weird transition. It didn't feel like that at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's it was one of those things. We didn't know for sure that we were gonna continue to play music as lit, um, but but it, it just felt right. And uh, songs just started pouring in again. We started writing these songs that we love. You know, like it, it just I think Alan kind of helped push us along. No. How do you think your writing style has changed over the years? Because as you said, you know, your latest album is more country. Um, you know, you're very hard in the beginning. How do you think you've changed and what made you change? But why, what do you think like was the guiding boat that took you to your direction now? I mean, I, I think if you... <clears throat> Anybody that's sort of um, fans that have been around since like way, way early on, have, they've all seen our band. Is like even on you know from if you listen to, from record to record and and you listen through, you know we've always had we've never really pigeonholed ourselves. We've never we've always kind of been all over the place. One day we might feel like writing you know something that's heavy, especially early on. We wrote a lot of heavy stuff, but we just kind of we've always just gone where what felt natural and where you know, where inspiration took us, and it sounds it probably sounds cliche, but um, we never really ever felt like, oh, our lit is all about this one thing, and we gotta, you know, bust out that template and write a song that fits in that mold. And um, but I think you know, just evolution, just like if you look at for us, if you look at uh, you know, a picture. If I look at a picture of myself from junior high, uh, and then look at another picture from tenth grade, and you know, as I as we grow, we our, our pace change, and uh, you know, when you've been a band for many years, as we have, if we if we were probably if we were writing songs like we were writing 20, 30 years ago, it, it'd be really weird. I feel like right. if, um, we've gone. You know, we've all had kids, and we've gotten married. We've gotten divorced. My brother and I, he's you know, he's gone through divorce, and there's just so many things that you know you go through in life that like kind of changes the way you look at things so I can't, I think indirectly it's going to or very directly I should say when you're writing a song it, you know the underlying lining theme is, is you know we still love to you know hang out with our friends we love to drink we love to you know we love to have a good time and, and but I think the only difference is now is now we like to do that sometimes and our kids are there and we like to do that with our with our neighbors and you know, and, and we're barbecuing, and we're still doing it, we're still drinking, and we're still having a good time, but it's not the same kind of, you know, prettiness that we were living when we were, you know, in our early 20s. Um, so, so now the songs maybe have a little more depth to them, and, you know, the appeal of a lot of the country songs, and even, you know, even like classic, classic rock, and like, just finding myself digging, you know, even going backwards in time, and appreciating music that I did when I was younger, and, like, now I understand what that, writer was trying to say, you know, and, um, so yeah, I mean, maturity and 
still still an element of immaturity and just enough maturity that we want to say more, you know. Now, what what and, and be honest, you know, don't uh don't feel like you can't answer this any certain way. So, because what makes what makes you a good frontman? Because you're a very good frontman. But what? How does someone become a good frontman? Because it's not like you take a class at community college. Like, hey, how to become a frontman? What makes you a good frontman? I don't know. I mean, I, I honestly, I I feel like if I'm being honest myself and with you, I would say that I've gone through phases of being a great frontman and being a shitty frontman. I think a lot of it has to do with you know, your the way the way the talks you have with yourself. You know, it's almost like Dirk Diggler in the Boogie Nights. Right. <laughs> I, I think that if you're if you're having a rough go, whether it's like you know, I find like if I'm going through a period of time where <clears throat> maybe some writer's block or maybe for whatever reason my confidence levels are down, then I'm gonna be you know I'm not gonna be a great frontman. But there's ways I, you know, I've learned you know, over the years that there's ways that I can like sort of trick myself and pull my head out of my ass and put on a great show um, but I do think it's man it, it, for me it's having like role models idols um, not, I, I would say men, it wouldn't be a mentor if you did if you never got to like ask them questions and hang out with them but you know I would literally there was nights where on the tour bus I would I would uh, about an hour before the show I would throw on old Van Halen videos literally I would actually I, I would take lines that David Lee Roth would say to the crowd and I would steal them. I would literally repeat lines that David Lee Roth said and just use them in context with the night, you know, that night show. And it's like everything that I, I'm not saying like, you know, the entire show, but I would take a couple highlight moments from a Van Halen concert and go, you know, I'm going to make this my own and use it tonight. And they were always the best moments of the night. So I think just, we grew up on a, you know, during an era where, um, not only was there no social media, there was no, um, you know, there was no, it was all mystique, you know what I mean? No one need, no one knew the real story about their favorite front man or their favorite, you know, rock star. So you can kind of be whatever you want to be on stage. So I think I, I would just take elements of like, you know, the fantasy of being a rock star and I would just, you know, I still do it. I just, I, I become, people that know me really well on a daily basis in my personal life, if they, if their minds are like blown by how different I am on stage <laughs> than I am in real, than I am in real life. I'm, I'm, you know, for the most part, I'm people that know me know I'm, I'm kind of soft spoken. Usually, I'm kind of shy. A little, I'm not like if you just met me on the street and didn't know I was a singer, you probably wouldn't like guess or you wouldn't say like this guy would make a great frontman. So I, I think I use the stage to live out that that thing that I've always wanted to be and I get to be there on stage and when I'm not, that's not me. <laughs> it's a trip. Now, what is it like to just look back and sit there and go, you know, my own worst enemy. Everybody knows that song. Like, do you ever sit there and you say, yeah, I mean, at one point you probably sit there and go, oh, I'm going to hear it again. Like, you know, I have a 90% chance to hear it. But in the other thing, you know, it must be amazing, but did you ever just think like, have you ever just walked through a mall or something or wherever and you hear that song and you're just saying to yourself, that's me singing, man. That, that's my band. I mean, does that happen to musicians? Yeah, it, it does. It, it, it trips me out. Like, it's... Uh, and Grateful isn't even... A, it's more than that. I, I can't even think of the word I would use, but it's, 
been lucky. I feel, I feel very, very, very fortunate to, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of my favorite music that never even got played on the radio. A lot of these songs that, you know, friends have written, um, that I listen to and I, and I just, I, it blows my mind because I'm like, man, this, I feel like this song is 20 times the song I almost said it is. Like why, like how and why. And the crazy thing is, man, it's like, it's hard really still. I mean, it's, do I think it's a cool, a good song? Yes. So I, I didn't, we didn't know when we wrote it that it was going to be like the smash, that we didn't think it was a smash or anything. Um, it was nothing was obvious to us. Um, but, you know, this, we just got hit up by uh, these filmmakers that, that want to film, and we're actually starting to kind of move forward with some of the stuff. But um, if you want to do a documentary on my worst enemy, I mean, they're going all, they're, they want to go all in. They're like, one of the first things they said was, we want to be 52 minutes because that's what, it's got to be at least 52 minutes to get, to get nominated for an Oscar. And it's basically just everything from like the science of what, you know, what it is about a song that makes it, you know, what's that spark that makes, what makes a song have longevity? Why is it, what is it about this song that 21 years later is still being, you know, played in karaoke bars and like you're saying, like, it is everywhere you go and it's, there's something, there's more to it, you know what I mean, than it being some like incredible song. It's a very simple song. It wasn't, you know, it, when you listen to it, there's nothing like, Musicianship wise, it's, it's simple. Like, what's kind of cool is, I guess, kids, when the kids like pick up a guitar and try to like learn a song for the first time, it's one of those that kids can kind of figure out. And that's, that might be part of it. <laughs> um, you know, I guess people can relate to it. But um, otherwise, man, I, I don't know. I think uh, I'm, I'm real anxious to see how these, how this documentary turns out. I know they, they want to like dig deep and, you know, pick our brains as to what it is about it, and then also they're gonna we're gonna talk to a lot of other people, from like scientists to celebrities and guys like Jimmy Fallon that that keep putting it on the show. But we still have played this. <laughs> we haven't been invited to play his late night show, but he's used our is that song in five about five different um, skits. So, he's got to get you on there. He's got to get you on there. Yeah, it's wild, man. <laughs> now, but, now who who came up with the lit logo? Because it's a great logo. Who came up with the name and the logo? We, uh, the name was something that we had, um, we had to change our name at, at the time that, that we, we changed. And the name of our first record was going to be called Lit. And I believe it was, you know, there were a couple different factors. One, I was, if Kevin had a sticker uh, in his bedroom where he took the letters of some, uh, of a, uh, either another band or a clothing company or something, cut out the letters to say Lit. So that was on our mind when it came to like titling the record. And then at one point, a journalist had made a comment in, uh, in a write-up about our live show and said, um, watching these guys play live was like watching a bomb go off in a building. I just, you couldn't say that nowadays, but right. <laughs> when, he, when he said that, we we're like, man, that's fucking, how cool is that? I guess not only is that an awesome compliment, but like, what about the name Lit as a description of the energy of our band? Like, just this, you know, this is obviously way before hashtag lit was a thing but it's crazy how now what the way the kids use the word lit is exactly what we were thinking when we named, named our band and it wasn't, you know back back then i think usually when you said lit i think our parents would have thought you know you were high or you know <laughs> there's a reference to that 
but you know, for us, it was always just, you know, we were, we were, it was an energy and we were lit up and, and, and we were a bomb about to go off. We always felt like that with our energy. And what about who made the logo? So the logo was, um, we, uh, as guys in, in the band during, you know, during, you know, that, that era, I guess I could say, we all had a group of friends and you know, we would have swore that when that movie Smears came out, that it was, uh, that somehow someone knew about the way we like to live our lives. And, um, you know, we were always, we were always going to Vegas and it was literally like that group of guys from Swingers, Swingers, except for we weren't at school. Jackson, that's all we drove and, um, you know, Las Vegas and gambling and Frank Sinatra. And we really kind of wanted to be, we idolized the Rat Pack, but we were a rock band. So we, you know, we wanted to somehow encompass that and put it, sort of in motion when it came to, when we met, when we first met with RCA, we explained, like, this is what we're all about, and we want to capture that um, in all of our imagery and our whole campaign. We want to let the world know that, you know, we want to be presented as sort of the Rat Pack of Rock. So the whole, you know, one of the first things that comes to mind is, like, this whole 50s and 60s lettering and, um, you know, the way we dressed and... uh, you know, the bowling alley, the, you know, all that stuff sort of is, it's all incorporated a lot of that Rat Pack stuff. Um, and then you know, the, the uh, our art director at RCA just totally got it. And everything that we had, you know, from the, from the cover, all the single cover art and all that was, was him. And uh, he just nailed it, man. Right. That's awesome, man. You know, I really want to thank you for taking it. And it's so funny, as I said, when I found out you, you knew Rich, I was like, well, that's cool. You know, because you always you always look for a common ground. I interview a lot of the musicians and actors, and there's always common grounds, like drummers. You know, the drummers all hang out. Like, you know, they're, they're clicked there. Right. And I don't, I don't know if the lead singers hang out. I don't know if you guys all have, like, a gang. But uh, so, so, so the, the single is out from the Pop-Off Brothers? Yeah. It came out uh, May 8th, and... Um, we're, you know, we get a lot, a lot of people are asking, yeah, first of all, it's like, it's crazy. The, the reaction has been like ah, all positive. I keep waiting to see, like, there might've been one naysayer, but like, I try not to really read everything, but when it comes to like, uh, when you get a reaction, um, where, where fans are chiming in and, and making these positive posts and sharing, and then I feel, you know, I feel like I need to acknowledge it and read it and so I've been reading everything and you know everyone's been so awesome everyone's asking you know when's the, is, it a, is it a full record that's going to come out are you guys you know just putting out one song what are you guys doing but we have uh, my brother and I have about four other songs that are finished um, not mixed but everything's recorded and, um, and we're kind of just you know we're, we're, we're not really pushing you know we want this to be something different as far as how we you know like how we take it out on the road and Obviously, right now, everyone's just wanting to get back on the road, period. No one knows how that's going to look, but we definitely want the Pop-Up Brothers thing to, you know, to look different and feel different than anything we do as lit. Um, so, I don't know. We don't know if we're going to just take a song, you know, one song at a time, or we're just kind of just letting the music guide us, and that's kind of what we did here. We weren't planning on putting out a Pop-Up Brothers single right away. We actually had planned on having a really busy year with lit, and we were supposed to be on the road, so... I think this whole quarantine thing, it's so crazy that the lyric video that we, uh, that our camp did for the song and with the, just what the song is all about is sort of like very right now. Um, 
and we didn't realize it until we started like listening to these songs again. Like, why don't we release Pop Up Brothers now? We, you know, we have this downtime, and um, you know, this summer is going to be really weird for a lot of people. But at the same time, it's you know, I'm starting to notice kids in the front yard with slip and slides and like all the shit we were doing in the '80s that I haven't seen any of these neighbor kids do it, you know, ever. Right. Um, so the fact that families are are having to stay home and they're having to get, you know, sort of keep the summer feel in their front and backyards, you know, it it, it actually feels more like summertime than it, than it has in a lot of years. So, um, yeah, man, I think it it just feels everything feels good right now with that song and with what's going on. That's, if there's such thing as a good feeling. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Now, now uh, the, I know the website for Lit is Lit Band. Are you on Twitter or Instagram or the Pop Off Brothers on there or what's going on? Yeah, Pop, it's not us. It's just Pop Off Brothers. We were on Instagram and Facebook. Um, we're not big Twitter users, so we haven't really done the Twitter yet. Um, we're, uh, but yeah, the website um, it should be. If it's not up now, it's going to be launched soon. Um, popoffbrothers.com, I believe. But yeah, we're, we're, you know, it's, we're just kind of rolling it out and it's, we didn't put a whole lot of time into overthinking anything. We're just kind of, as we, you know, as we, uh, as we feel it, we just, we just roll it. But we have a great team right now as well. Um, Gabe Rose is our manager and those guys are, um, they're constantly thinking even during this quarantine, which I love. So I think we're in a lucky spot again and everything feels good considering, (laughs) Well, that's awesome, man. I, I want to thank you for coming on. People, go look up the Pop-Off Brothers. Look up Lit. Go to their website. Buy their albums. Buy their merch. They have very cool merch on the Lit website. They have some cool t-shirts on sale for $9.99. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 790 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Uh, Twitter is at Cooper Cooper Talk, actually. At Instagram, it's at Cooper Talk one And I started a new page on Facebook, Cooper Talk Radio. So go like it. Anyway, so check out Lit. Thank you, AJ. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.